welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. Welcome to our Women in Arbitration podcast mini-series, a platform for women's voices across the global international arbitration community. I'm Lucy Winnington-Ingram, an international arbitration lawyer based in Reed Smith's London office. In these episodes, we will hear from leading women in the international arbitration space and discuss industry news, trends, developments, and matters of interest. And with that, let's get started. Welcome back to Arbitral Insights and to the inaugural episode of our Women in Arbitration series. My name is Lucy Winnington Ingram, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Lucy Reed, independent arbitrator and president of the International Council for Commercial Arbitration. Lucy, thank you very much for joining me today for this first episode in our new series. Congratulations on your podcast, and I really am honored to be the first, and the timing is good for Women's Day. Thank you. Absolutely. So we're going to kick off this podcast today by looking at one of the less talked about issues relevant to the ICSID UNSATRAL draft code. So in May 2020, the ICSID and UNSATRAL secretariats released a draft code of conduct for adjudicators. And this code was developed jointly in the context of the work of UNSATRAL Working Group 3 and the process underway to amend the ICSID rules. The draft code has given rise to significant debate, and much has been said and written on it, particularly in regards to hot ticket issues of the day, such as double hatting, for example. But less attention has been given to another important issue raised, namely the possibility of an absolute limitation on the number of cases an adjudicator can hear simultaneously. Now, Article 8 of the draft code requires candidates to ensure their availability and if selected, to act in a diligent and punctual manner throughout the proceedings. And availability and efficiency are listed in the commentary to the draft code as being amongst the core duties for adjudicators. Now, paragraph two of Article 8, rather controversially, introduces the possibility of a fixed limit on the number of cases that an arbitrator may sit on at any one time. And this is based on a concern that an adjudicator may not be able to dedicate the necessary time when working on many cases. Now, Lucy, as a a full-time independent arbitrator, to what extent do you think this concern is rooted in the reality? Is it a real or a perceived issue? Is it true that certain arbitrators are really too busy to dedicate sufficient time to their cases? Lucy, I think it's some of both. If I listen to the gripe index, there is a widespread perception that ISDS arbitral tribunals are too slow in setting hearings and in issuing awards. But my experience tells me that there are only a few tribunals that are late, very late, way late, that lead to a large percentage of the complaints. And I think it's very important to remember that a tribunal has three arbitrators on it. And if one is slow, the other two tend to get tarred. So it it can uh, mushroom into more complaints. 
It's also important to remember that that provision in the draft code of conduct is in brackets completely, and the number of cases that might be a cap, whether it's five or 10 or three, is also in brackets. It's definitely something that's being discussed. And I have, I should say, I have a particular interest in this topic, as you know, because I gave a talk at a celebration of the life of uh, our dear friend, David Karen. And in preparing to do that, I found out that he had given a lecture to the opening class of MIDS, the the LLM program in Geneva in, I think, 2017 uh, or 18. And the name of it was the rule of X. And I went to look up what in heaven's name (laughs) the rule of X was. And I found that David was pondering and researching the idea that an arbitrator should have his or her own X number of cases that he or she can handle responsibly, regardless of what outside codes of conduct say, or regardless of what cap numbers other people may say. So I have been uh, trying to promote this as an alternative or a complement to the idea of some code of conduct number of cases. So the rule of X would, in essence, be a a soft rule uh, or or a guideline for individual arbitrators to adhere to and thus address concerns around arbitrator availability without a hard and fast limit. Do you think that a hard and fast limit is appropriate in any case? No. And I would you just made me think that I would call the rule of X not even a, a soft rule. I call it the softest rule. Because a soft rule would be a guideline, say, in a code of conduct that arbitrators should aim not to have more than 10 cases or more cases than they can handle. But the rule of X is a rule of self-discipline in which an arbitrator sits herself down and says, how many can I really handle on a timely basis? And there are so many factors that go into that that are subjective and objective. For example, Are you a full or part-time arbitrator? Are you an academic or a practitioner with other commitments? What are your family commitments? How about health and energy and age? You have to think about the complexity of the cases you already have. Are they giant? Are they medium size or are they baby size? You have to think about being chair versus wing. And one last thing I want to say is you have to think about your appetite for travel or nowadays your appetite for screen time, or how many hearings and meetings you can handle. So I can't imagine that any code of conduct can take all of those factors into account to say everybody's X has to be 10 cases or five cases. And if you do, David was very concerned that that would prevent parties from having the services of some of the best arbitrators who can handle more cases, and it wouldn't necessarily ensure that new and more diverse arbitrators would get those extra cases. Of course, because it's going to be a a subjective number, so it's not perhaps appropriate to have a uniform number that would apply universally to people in very, very different circumstances and and scenarios. And actually, you know, the, the comments to the draft code, which were recently released in January, show that stakeholders are overwhelmingly opposed to a fixed limit, which is something I found quite interesting. 
And a number of states have come up with alternative ways to address concerns around arbitrator availability that don't fall within this fixed limit. So I know that states such as Costa Rica and Israel have proposed that instead of an absolute limit, Article 8 could require disclosure of the number of cases an adjudicator is appointed to instead. And I know that disclosure has been relied on as an alternative to a number of other proposals in the draft code, including things like double hatting. Do you think that disclosure would be appropriate in in this context? I think disclosure is very important. I think disclosure has to be more robust and more honest. I remember the days when the ICC would just ask, do you have capacity, yes or no? Now we're familiar through ICSID and ICC and other institutions, and I was one of the proponents of this, to having to fill out a calendar where a prospective arbitrator puts down uh, her commitments going forward. And by commitments, I need, I mean firm commitments, hearings as counsel or arbitrator, personal vacations, other obligations going forward two or three years. Those have to be honest. And sometimes I think that arbitrators should be cross-examined on the accuracy of those disclosures. Another thing that should happen that would benefit us all, I think, would be if the institutions, or at least the arbitrators themselves, tried to match calendars. Because it's not enough to know that arbitrator one has the schedule and arbitrator two has that schedule. When you're trying to find a chair, you ought to be looking for matches of availability. There's some pretty easy software for this. So I think robust disclosures are a better solution than a fixed number of cases. And I should say, Lucy, that I sit now that I'm a full-time arbitrator with arbitrators who carry many more cases than I do, who are always responsive, they're read into the cases, they're very reliable. And I sit with others whom I expect to have a small number of cases who are delaying our tribunals because they have to be teaching or they have to be counsel or I don't know what they're doing. So I, I just can't accept that a number is a good way to go. But I do have to say the issue won't go away because in the latest Queen Mary Corporate Council survey that they did, a very high percentage, I think over 80% of the corporate council responding, said they were in favor of a fixed cap on cases for ISDS arbitrators. And they preferred five, the number five, over 10. I think this would be a mistake. David, in his rule of X, felt that if arbitrators that are very experienced, like myself and many others more important than I am, would think and turn down cases that are smaller or less interesting for them, those would go to newer, younger, more diverse arbitrators. So it it could help expand the pool by limiting ourselves. No, absolutely. And I think it's actually very interesting, the divergence between state stakeholders, and we've seen their comments to the draft code and their, that they're being against this uh, fixed limit and corporate counsel seemingly wanting to impose what I would consider a very small number of cases as the limit. And I suppose when you think about it, that may in part be due to the kind of rise of third party funding and alternative fee arrangements where corporate counsel are motivated to get the award as quickly as they possibly can, because it's relevant to how they're going to get paid for the the arbitration. So you can see the different motivating factors between different stakeholders that perhaps give rise to these differing viewpoints. 
Yes, but there's a flaw there, which is that the corporate counsel, who of course are representing claimants, investors, or are the investors themselves, often are the ones who want to name the most experienced arbitrators because it's a high stakes game, international arbitration, and especially ISDS. And so they don't want someone who isn't highly experienced. And the highly experienced arbitrators include the chronic overbookers. So I think sometimes corporate counsel make their own beds and they, they have to stay in them. I see that. What about other kind of external guidelines that could perhaps be complementary to, to self-monitoring by reference to the rule of X? So, for example, and this, I suppose, would be it would be an actual soft rule. Uh, the United States has proposed the inclusion of a positive obligation for arbitrators within the draft code that they should not accept any appointment which would prevent them from meeting reasonable timelines in any of their cases. What about something like that? Do you think that would be an appropriate remedy? To me, that is the rule of X in another costume. It is an obligation, a soft obligation on a prospective arbitrator to, again, look herself in the eye and say, can I take on this appointment as chair or as wing or sole arbitrator and keep up with the demands of that case along with my other caseload. I like that. I don't think we have to call the rule the rule of X. It's, it's a little um, bizarre, but it is a form of the rule of X. If you put it in with disclosure, then I think it is where we should be focusing. So it's almost kind of codifying the self-monitoring then. It's putting it into the interrules and guidelines, but it is in principle the same thing. Yes. I like the rule of X too, because I promised my audience at Berkeley when I gave the talk about David that I would be a bit evangelical about promoting his rule of X because he had just started to research and think about how to use it for different categories of adjudicators. So I've been, I've been writing about it. I should say, though, you just made me think of something else, which is it doesn't matter how careful one is about the rule of X or of having only five cases. It doesn't matter. As soon as there are provisional measures applications or emergency applications, everything can go out the window. I know I took on an appointment last year or two years ago where my co as chair, my co-arbitrator said there might be a little provisional matter, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't be too much. And within a week I was on a plane at a hearing and writing a long award, which didn't fit in well with my personal schedule for the other awards that I was finishing up. So arbitrators are not completely in control of their writing schedule and their hearing schedule. Of course. And you said that you're, you know, you've made it a kind of personal mission, very admirable, to promote the, the rule of X. How's that going? Do you have a feel for how other arbitrators view the rule of X? Do you think that there's growing support? I have not heard many people talking about it as the rule of X, but as there are more discussions about external codes of conduct being imposed on arbitrators, I am hearing more discussion and more self-reflection about the importance of protecting our reputations together. I see more people aware of not wanting to be the arbitrator who says, I don't have a hearing window for two years. Yes. And I think, you know, it's the 
I think what you proposed earlier about institutions taking a look at different arbitrators, different schedules and trying to marry arbitrators together on, on that basis is very sensible. Because, I mean, I've, I've certainly had personal experience of a tribunal not being able to find a hearing date for, for two years. And then if that hearing, if, it, if the number of days were to extend, the tribunal can't possibly fit it into the window that they've set aside. So I think that is that is a real issue. And of course, perceived delays or excessive time periods in, in issuing awards which I think is the other key issue and the thing that really gives rise to, to, to real stakeholder concerns. So, Lucy, I'm sure the question that's going to be on many of our listeners' minds is what is your X number and how did you personally calculate that? My X number is 10 to 12 cases at a time. And I calculated it based on my experience since I became a full-time arbitrator of the number of cases that I can handle two-thirds usually as chair or sole arbitrator and the other third as wing and about half being ISDS and half being commercial. I found that I got way behind on award drafting when I stayed an extra semester at the National University of Singapore and teaching and running the International Law Center there did not leave enough time to do the awards that I took on responsibility for thinking I would have left NUS by that time. And I swore I would never let that happen again. So I have paced myself based on time being available after hearings to write awards, which for me takes unbroken, uninterrupted chunks of time. And I'm happy to report that with that X number, I have only one award outstanding and it is, it is nearly done. And I have made sure to balance out cases that are in the early busy phases, then quiet, and then the end busy phases of hearings and awards. Having said that, I have colleagues who carry twice that many cases, and I think they're more efficient than I am. So it's it's not meant to uh, be something as a measure for anybody else. <laughs> Thank you. One of the other real benefits, though, and you mentioned earlier, of the rule of X, and particularly in being mindful of taking the number of cases that an arbitrator is taking on and then perhaps stopping at that limit is diversity and expansion of the arbitrator pool. And of course, it, it stands to reason that if arbitrators, you know, particularly those who tend to be oversubscribed, uh, start becoming mindful of approaching their X number, they may start to turn down smaller cases or those cases that interest them, them less. And then these would presumably go to younger and more diverse arbitrators, which is in everybody's best interest. Well, that was David's goal. And I share that goal because I go through the process now when I'm invited to sit as an arbitrator in a new case, whether it's commercial or ISDS, I now consciously stop and think not only about how it will fit in with my existing caseload, but do I want to do the case? Does someone with my experience need to do the case? And I try to resist the temptation not to disappoint or not to create the idea that I'm not taking on any more appointments. In many ways, it's like the pledge, uh, the gender pledge, which is uh, effective because it has prompted so many people to stop and think before they come up with the exact same list of arbitrators. 
with the rule of X, it makes me stop and think about what am I doing and why am I doing it? Now, of course, for your listeners, I have to say I'm in the privileged position, as are many of my colleagues at arbitration chambers, of turning down cases, of being asked to do more than I can do. And it's not going to apply too hard to someone who is building up a book of business as an arbitrator. There you have to take what you get for a while, for sure. And I imagine your X number has to be recalibrated several times over the life of your career as, as, your, as your career grows and changes. You make a very good point, And I should have mentioned that the rule of X should get smaller as you get older and as you take on a very large case. It should get larger as mine has recently because three of my cases have gone into suspension. And so I'm not going to be devoting time to them for the near future and perhaps ever again. It it changes constantly. The X changes constantly within limits. And for me now, I want to do more work as a mediator and a conciliator. So I am trying to keep my level of cases lower than many people would expect I would. And I suppose that's just further support for why a universal number can't be appropriate, because if it has to be amended for each individual's changing circumstances, then it can't be that one number could be applicable to all all arbitrators, regardless of the, the points that they are in at their career. Well said. <laughs> you mentioned earlier when we were discussing diversity, the equal representation in arbitration pledge. Now, it's been over five years since the pledge was drawn up. In your, in your day-to-day experience, do you, do you think it's working and why? I do think the pledge is working. From my perspective as SEAC vice president and looking at the statistics of other arbitration institutions, the number of women being appointed is rising. In many ways, more important, the conversation about women in arbitration is mature and robust. Other areas of diversity, not so much. And that is where I tend to be focusing my efforts as president of ICA. The reason the pledge is working, and I borrow a phrase that I heard from the senior partner of an Asian practice group, a man, is that it requires us to stop for five minutes or more than five minutes before we write down the usual suspects and say, are there qualified women I should be adding to this list? Maybe there aren't, maybe there are. If there are, maybe they will be picked, maybe they won't. But the names are getting on the lists and we're seeing more and more tribunals with two women arbitrators not being that exceptional. I'm very happy with the pledge and congratulate everybody who has pushed it. It's that, as you say, heightened level of consciousness. So I don't believe that people routinely sought to exclude women from their shortlist previously, but now they, they're stopping and they're thinking. And that, I think, is making slowly, hopefully, is going to make all the difference as, as we go forward. Aside from that heightened level of consciousness, are there any other proactive steps that you think practitioners of all forms across the international arbitration space should be taking to further the pledge's goals? I see positive results from the networking and training efforts that women are making with each other. There's mute off Thursdays. There are the young 
arbitrator groups uh, that have women's events. Networking is a slow process, but successful networking means that we have longer lists of names to think about when we think again in nominating more women to more arbitral appointments. Brilliant. Well, Lucy, thank you so much. That's been such an interesting discussion and it's been so great to have you here today. I hope you've all enjoyed listening to the first in our Women in Arbitration series and I hope you will tune back in for more over the coming months. Thank you for having me and I wish everyone who hears this a productive Women's Day. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.